0: Great family of one-week season. What is going on? Welcome to the week 14 edition of the Angles Podcast. I'm excited to dive into today's podcast as I use my podcaster voice instead of acting like I'm just chatting with you. Uh, I'm excited to dive into today's podcast because it's a more unique slate than... I realized as I was going through the NFL Edge, as I was writing the NFL Edge, researching the NFL Edge, even sort of collecting information from the NFL Edge to build my player pool. So I, I talk about this a little bit more in depth in the player grid, which is actually uh player grid is completely finished. So uh, by the time you're listening to this, the player grid will also be live alongside this. Um, so you can read kind of a little bit more deeply there how this slate sets up and what my sort of journey was through understanding this slate. But yeah, this slate's a lot more like last week's slate than I initially realized. And uh, last week, well, last week, actually, we did have an edge, a bigger edge than I anticipated. Last week, I mentioned, I think I mentioned on the Angles podcast that I was expecting to potentially not play. Uh, I ended up not playing, interestingly, uh, for any of you who didn't listen to the DFS recap pod with with myself and Scott Barrett this last week, um, I ended up not playing, but on Saturday night and Sunday morning, I took a shot on a few rosters. Now, part of the reason why I didn't play was because with holidays, plus a wife who's eight months pregnant, plus the NBA season about to tip off, um, all of this sort of overlapping at the same time, I'm just... Obviously, un- unbelievably busy right now, and um, and then it was a tough slate. So I kind of felt like, you know what, I'm not like I've said before. If I'm going to play single entry, I actually like to have more time than than for multi entry play because with more time, I can kind of take that multi entry pool and then narrow it down more and more to what I feel is the absolute sharpest build on the slate. I've used the example in the past of when I used to throw all of my practice builds into the quarter arcade. Typically, my one lineup would outscore uh, 95% of the lineups that I had in the quarter arcade, the lineups that I would built throughout the week. And um, So anyhow, I-, I was highly unlikely to actually play this last weekend while giving myself minimal time to play single-injury play. But Saturday night, Sunday morning, I gave myself a little bit of time to mess around with builds, and I built seven or eight rosters total across, I don't know, two hours of messing around with things. Um, maybe like an hour and 15 minutes on Saturday night, and then after I sent out the Sunday morning email, uh, I put in about 45 minutes just trying to see if I could get down to anything. Interestingly, I started all of those rosters with Corey Davis and Jonathan Taylor. Now, Jonathan Taylor didn't have a huge game, but not many players did have a huge game last week. Not many players had a really strong game, and uh, Jonathan Taylor had a really strong game, and obviously... Uh, Corey Davis, Darren Waller, and the Patriots defense were kind of the three key pieces last week. So I would not have had a huge weekend, uh, or at least certainly not a first-place weekend, but I uh, had a very good starting point, and, and obviously had a lot of we had a lot of other guys in the player grid last week who were in that sort of 15 to 25-point range. Uh, so I say that to say that last week there was more of an edge than it looked like, and maybe if I'd had an extra four or five hours or six or seven hours to mess around with rosters, I would have gotten a better sense. In fact, uh, like five of those rosters last week uh, was Corey Davis and Tannehill. Tannehill put up over 30 points as well. But um, maybe with a little bit more time, I would have been able to really see what the edge was and how I could apply it to single entry. But I think it's likelier that even with more time last week, just the way that that slate set up, I would have felt like... The edge just wasn't there for my style of play. Uh, That was kind of what I talked about last week was there is an edge on weeks like that. Uh, And a player like Cubs fan, that's like his optimal type of week is where kind of no one really knows what they're doing. But a player like me, my biggest edge, and I think a lot of us on OWS, our biggest edge is having a better understanding in the field of what the chalk should actually be. And it's not so much that that makes us better than the field at predicting where the good games are going to come from, right? Like the the scores that are going to win you a tournament. But one of the things that we'll see week in and week out over time is that OWS members are going to miss out on the chalk duds far more often than the field. Uh, And it sort of ties into just the nature of how we approach Research how we approach the slate. We're not worried about projections as the first and foremost thing in our thought processes. We're not worried about Vegas lines as the first and foremost thing in our thought processes. And very importantly, we're not worried about matchups as the, the most important thing in our thought processes. We're worried about game environment and coaching tendencies and usage and what produces the most upside. And so we're often able to see the players who are incorrect chalk, the players who are just less likely to hit for a big game than the field is anticipating. And so we're able to sort of miss out on those chalky duds, which automatically narrows our player pool to just a, a tighter build of players. So you'll notice a lot of times where, let's say you have a, a bad weekend, your player's disappointed. But the you can look and see that the players that you consciously faded based on the research and based on the way you were approaching things, that those players disappointed as well. Like the chalky players that you consciously said, you know what, this guy shouldn't be this chalky, I'm moving away from him. Far more often than not, those players end up disappointing. And so maybe you don't always get the, the right players right, you see, but you're narrowing down your player pool and cutting out some of these Duds that are high-owned duds that the rest of the field is ending up on. So again, that's one of the big edges, and it's worth going into all that because it's important to understand what your edge is in order to be able to continue sharpening that edge and deepening that edge and tapping into that edge. And on a week like last week, where just nothing really stood out, the way I said it last week was all of the top chalk was substandard top chalk. So typically what you do there is you say, oh, well, let's just go down to that second tier, that third tier, and it'll be lower owned. And, you know, it's it's close to as good of the plays up at the top, but everybody's on these plays at the top. But last week when you went down to the second tier, it was like a bad second tier. And you went down to the third tier, it was a bad third tier and so on and so forth. And uh, in fact, I, one of my regrets from last week was I originally in the player grid, I had Corey Davis isolated and written up individually. And then I started writing up the Titans passing attack. I had Corey Davis written up in the bonus section as the top wide receiver. And then the Titans passing attack written up in the build around section. And then it was like, well, this is superfluous. And so I pulled Corey Davis up into there. It would have been nice to have had him isolated just because that obviously would have uh, elevated OWS ownership even higher had he been isolated. But Corey Davis was kind of a guy who I was on, from the NFL edge through the end of the weekend. And Jonathan Taylor was a guy who was on from the NFL edge through the end of the weekend. And that was really it. And it was kind of like everything else just felt like a lot of guessing to me. And turned out that <laughs> having Corey Davis and Jonathan Taylor as a foundation would have been enough to get you, you know, over 60 points as a starting point and really get you moving toward at least cashing on a week like that with obviously clear shots at, at first place with that starting point. But from, from, In front of the slate, you know, like we're talking about hindsight now, and from in front of the slate, there's no guarantee that Corey Davis is, I mean, AJ Brown rolled his ankle, Corey Davis, you know, saw some extra looks as a result. There's no guarantee that things are going to work out that way. The point of the Corey Davis play was just that it was such a better play than the field was going to recognize at such a lower price tag and such low risk. It wasn't like we're saying, hey, this guy's going to go out and score 38 points, get on him. We're just trying to position ourselves to find the plays that are way better than the field recognizes and that have a higher ceiling than the field recognizes. And so if you can just find one or two of those plays, you're not guaranteed that those one or two plays are actually going to hit on the small sample size of a single weekend. And so then you look at the rest of the slate and say, well, I've got two plays and everything else kind of feels a lot like guessing. So it was a good week for me to take my... My busyness, and just say, you know what, I don't have this. Uh, I think the first time since I started playing DFS that I actually took a main slate off. I've, I've thought about it other times and been tempted to some other times. I've gone into Saturday thinking that maybe I would some other times, but that's the first time I actually did that. And it was a good weekend to do it just because, hey, like I was busy and the slate didn't set up great for me. Anyhow. This week's slate sets up similarly, but I like it a lot more. And again, dive into the player grid to see sort of my deeper thoughts on that. But basically, people don't really know what to do this week. And it appears that chalk is A, getting kind of spread out, and B... Generally, it's congregating on name value and recency bias. You know, people are taking guys who had good games recently, like Darren Waller is going to be popular. Derrick Henry obviously is going to be popular because as we talked about in the NFL Edge, he had that huge game against the Jags on Thursday Night Football a couple of years ago and everybody saw it. So now everyone just sort of auto-plays Derrick Henry against the Jags. Corey Davis is going to be popular because he had a big game last week uh, and then you know name value like a, a lot of these guys who are just like well I don't know who to play so let me just go to this name this name this name and then the the worst is where if if you're one of these players who's kind of leaning into that the worst is if you actually go into the weekend thinking that you have things figured out like if you don't even recognize that there are a lot of question marks at the top this week. And you go in just thinking like, oh man, I'm locking in this great roster and you're shocked when things don't work out the way that you're expecting. Like, okay, the Chiefs can blow up against anybody. The matchup doesn't concern us at all. But look at the NFL edge and what we dove into in that matchup and and the matchups in which the Chiefs have been passing so heavily and what opponents have been doing against the Dolphins and how heavily teams have been attacking the Dolphins on the ground and then ask yourself, well, what are the chances that Mahomes throws 40 plus pass attempts in this game? And at this price tag, do you really want him if he's throwing 32, 33 pass attempts? Do you really want Kelsey? Do you really want Tyreek Hill? But those are guys who, you know, we're gonna see probably 15 plus percent, not not 15 plus percent on Mahomes, but I would guess 15 plus percent on Tyreek, on Kelsey, because we've seen these big games lately. People don't really know where to go. Kelsey could totally hit for a huge game. Tyreek Hill could totally hit for a huge game. But at those price tags, even a huge game doesn't kill you if you don't have it. And if you can spot it and see like, you know what, how is this game actually going to play out? How many times are the Chiefs actually going to throw the ball? Are they going to throw the ball enough for these guys to get 35 to 40 points? Or are they going to get them more into like the low 20 point range where you're saying, yeah, that's a fine score, but... It certainly doesn't kill me for not having them. And it certainly gives me some paths for moving ahead of the field. And, and there's just going to be a lot of chalk like that where people are like, well, if, like I said in that Chiefs right up at the front end of the week with with preliminary research, that was one of the spots that I liked the most. And then as I started diving into things, it was like, ooh, this spot's not as good as it looks on the surface. And so we'll just have a lot of chalk being Kind of spread out to places like that. Not to talk down those plays. If if you like the Chiefs this week, and you have your reasons why you like the Chiefs, or whatever other plays I've mentioned, and and there's different ways to build. There, you know, it's it's as likely that you'll have a first place roster this week with Chiefs pieces as you know some other pieces we might talk about throughout this podcast. But the the point is how people's rosters are going to come together this week is people are going to kind of convince themselves based on surface elements that certain plays are better than they really, truly are. So it was interesting when I finished my research and started looking at ownership projections to realize like, or I should say, when I finished putting together my player pool. So I finished my research, gone through all of it, collected everything, built my player pool, and then looked at ownership projections and to recognize that, okay, a lot of what I'm on is just different this week than the field. So again, talk about that more deeply in the player grid and what that means and what that means for my rosters. But I like this week. Uh, I like the way it sets up because I feel like I have a bead on something that would make me a lot of money over time on this weekend. As I talk about in the player grid, I would cash less often on this weekend But because of the way that I'm seeing things versus the way the field is likely to be seeing things, the weekends when I would cash on this slate, I would make quite a bit more money than, you know, in the slates set up some other ways. So uh, again, uh, this type of slate that you like to run into and one that I'm excited about. With the player grid completed, I have a really good sense of what's covered in there, And a lot of the sort of interesting elements that make this slate unique are covered in there. So we might keep today's podcast a little bit shorter than normal. Typically, we hit an hour to an hour and 10 minutes. We'll see. We might be like 45 minutes to 50 minutes today. But let's go ahead and dive into the bottom-up build. It's week 14. If you are listening to this You have probably been listening to this all season, or you've probably been listening to this for multiple years. But really quickly, bottom-up build, a lot of people make the mistake of starting their rosters from the top, figuring out which players they really wanna play, and then working their way down. And then they get stuck scooping up really bad value that they convince themselves is decent enough to work So that they can fit in these guys that they really like at the top. We like to start from the bottom and work our way up in order to find the pieces that we would actually feel comfortable moving into the slate with. We would not want a roster with all nine of these pieces, but this gives us an idea of maybe one or two or three places where we can go and feel comfortable with our salary savings and then from there fit in the other guys that we want to fit in. So, Not the cheapest plays that we can stomach, but moving from the bottom up and finding plays that actually stand out to us. And then again, as always, after I do that, I like to then go from the top back down and find the players who, when you drop below them, you end up in just a completely different tier of player. And that's typically how you find kind of the lowest-priced player in a particular range. Today's bottom-up build, this week's bottom-up build, leaves... You ready for this? It leaves 12.9k in salary on the table. I don't think we've ever had that much left in salary on the table before. Obviously, there are other places where we can go up from pricing here, but those places are much easier to find. So we're going to focus primarily on these bottom-up pieces and just kind of figure out which ones of these are more viable than others, which ones are stronger than others, which types of contests we would be most comfortable with these pieces in. Uh, Probably the best part about this week's bottom-up build is that, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, possibly six of these nine pieces will come in at under 5% ownership. In fact, five of these nine pieces could come in at under, oh, I don't know, 3% ownership, with some of these pieces coming in under 1% ownership. You really only need one piece on a roster like that in in most contest types. You know, as always, you should be studying first place rosters. You should be getting a feel for what finishes in first place, what finishes near the top of tournaments kind of on a week in and week out basis. But a lot of times you'll find that these rosters have maybe, you know, uh, let's say one or two guys who are 7% owned, 8% owned, But plenty of guys who are kind of in that 12%, 15%, 20% range, and then a lot of times only one, maybe two pieces that are just really low-owned. Now, part of the reason is because the field, we have a full week to research, and there are a lot of really smart people doing research. There are a lot of really smart people running back-tested projection systems. There are a lot of people putting a lot of time into this, By the time we get to Sunday, the players who are, I think I mentioned this in the the player grid, that there is a relatively high correlation between high-owned players and players who end up being productive. Conversely, there uh, tends to be a negative correlation overall between low-owned players and players who are productive. That's because you're not going to find a ton of pieces every week that are just going completely overlooked. Now, again, this week is a little bit unique in that people don't really know where to go at the top either, right? Like, ownership's kind of appearing like it's going to be spread out across different players who, again, seem to be built largely off of name value and recency bias. Like, nothing is standing out this week, and so people are just kind of taking shots at what they want to do. And this, So this week, more than most, is the type of week when, and again, this is why I, I I like this week, and I like the fact that I'm running into sort of a set of players who are just kind of going overlooked is this is the type of week in which a full roster of lower owned guys can end up hitting just because there's no clearly defined chalk. There's no clearly defined top plays. Like what Derrick Henry is going to be one of the highest owned players at like 9k in salary as a yardage and touchdown back who sure he can put up 36 to 41 against the Jags, but he can also put up 18 points or eight points, right? Like we covered in the NFL Edge what his games, his last four games against the Jags have looked like. Two of them have been big games. Two of them have been massive disappointments, like 12 points and below type games. That's the type of chalk we're dealing with this week. Like Devonte Adams and Aaron Rodgers are really the only guys who, who it's just going to be really hard for them to fail. And even them, Detroit gives up so many touchdowns on the ground that it wouldn't be a shock if both those guys put up a really solid real-life game and and don't pop for fantasy, right? Like Rodgers puts up 24 and Adams puts up 22, right? Like that wouldn't be a shock. And at their price tags, that would basically sink your roster. And so, uh, and those are like the strongest plays this weekend from like a chalk perspective. And so, uh, again, this is the type of week where maybe more of your rosters could have just or or your roster could have more low-owned players and still have that clear shot at competing. But on most weeks, you really only need one or two of these like super low-owned guys. So I love that this roster has so many options in this range because it really gives you some flexibility if you really like the chalk this week. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. If you're like, yeah, JM, I disagree. I like this piece from my own thoughts and my own research and it happens to be somewhat popular and i like this piece from my own thoughts and research and it happens to be somewhat popular that's totally fine too right like o- over time it's plus ev as long as you're building your rosters as as blender always says right rosters not players as long as your roster d- doesn't have like 160% combined ownership and as long as it's well thought through, better correlated than the field's rosters, better leveraged than the field's rosters, as long as you're keeping that strategy element in mind, you can win with kind of any roster, right? Like any set of plays because over time, the main thing that matters is how you're putting together your rosters. The main thing that matters is how you're positioning yourself for first place. You could lean on groupthink and... You know, highest projected players, and then strategize in how you're putting them together and still be profitable over time. So, if you like the chalk this week, awesome, right? Like, that might be what ends up working on the small sample size of this one weekend, and you just need a couple differentiators. So, feel free to borrow some of these differentiators, or if you're seeing the slate differently, if you're seeing the slate kind of the way I'm seeing it, feel free to lean into multiples of these pieces. But enough talk. Let's dive in. And I guess we'll start, with, we'll start with the three pieces that won't be just tremendously low-owned. And they're kind of the three pieces that require the least amount of explanation. And we'll start at the top from an ownership perspective with J.D. McKissick. Now, McKissick, will mention this in the player grid, but McKissick's ceiling isn't particularly... High. McKissick's role doesn't change dramatically. With that said, uh, Washington's going to have a tough time running the ball against San Francisco anyway. And they're going to have an even tougher time trying to run the ball with Peyton Barber. So the chances of JD McKissick seeing extra time in the field are elevated. JD McKissick, I think it's 10 plus targets in three of five games with Alex Smith. As always, we want to think in terms of actual numbers. Let's give McKissick 10 targets. What does that mean? That probably means, Now I know he caught 10 of 10 last week, right? But over time, what does that mean? That probably means about eight catches. PPR scoring, DraftKings, that's eight points right there. He probably gets another five carries as well, six carries, seven carries. But how many yards is he getting against the 49ers defense, right? Receiving plus rushing, Really great best-case scenario, maybe he piles up 80 total yards, right? So you've got eight catches, 80 total yards between rushing and receiving. Uh, It's likelier that he gets like 50, 60 yards rushing and receiving. If he's not scoring a touchdown, he's not – well, if he's not scoring a touchdown, he's not getting you to 20 points in most scenarios. And he basically needs two touchdowns to leave you in the dust – For not having him. With that said. Look at this slate. Look at this week as a whole. How many players are there that you can look at and say. You know what? I bet this guy gets me 15 points. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 points. In most scenarios. (laughs) There aren't many players of that type of floor. So recognize what McKissick provides. Recognize that the reason why people will jump on him heavily. Is faulty. Faulty. But that doesn't mean that he's a bad play. Uh, he's not a separator, more than likely. He's unlikely to put the slate out of reach if you don't have him. But if you just want to say, hey, look, I'm taking some risks in other spots. I feel like I have a lot of upside in other spots. And I just want to grab a pretty locked-in like 12 to 17 points. Uh, I would feel I would feel very comfortable with going to McKissick here with that pro- thought process behind you. Uh, recognize that touchdowns are going to be necessary and are unlikely to hit, right? They're going to be necessary for him to have upside and they're unlikely to hit. He has one all season against Detroit who allows every running back to score touchdowns. And in fact, that was one of the games where McKissick had 15 targets against Detroit and scored a touchdown and put up 17.9 DraftKings points. So again, don't be duped by the simplicity of this play and just say, well, plug and play, throw him in there, free square. Recognize what he actually provides and recognize what you're fading if you fade him. But at 4,900, he's a guy who I really like as far as just if, if you have a roster where you're like, you know what, I'm taking some appropriate risks and I'm betting on a small number of things. And if these two or three things go right, these like five or six pots on my roster all do really well, Let me just grab some safety, some security. Let me ride with the field a little bit because I'm differentiated in other spots. And let me just grab these these pretty locked-in points from McKissick. Uh, I would be very comfortable with that. So 4,900 JD McKissick is a pretty easy guy to lock onto this bottom-up build. The next guy probably won't see that 20% ownership, but I would guess... Uh, and I say won't see that twenty percent ownership because of a, a variety of reasons. Um, there are some running backs priced a little bit above him who will be popular, and McKissick is priced a little below him and will be popular. The matchup puts this running back in a negative game script, uh, but that is Miles Gaskin at only fifty six hundred. Uh, as I say in the player grid, the answers are kind of filled in for you here. He has this you know four game stretch where he's been the lead back, and Jordan Howard has been inactive, or cut. In those games, he has 21 plus touches every time. Uh, He and Jordan Howard, so Gaskin has played eight games. He and Jordan Howard in those eight games, just in those eight games, he and Jordan Howard have combined to rank fourth in the NFL in carries inside the five-yard line, fourth in the NFL in touchdowns inside the five-yard line, and that's with them only playing two-thirds of the season. So Miles Gaskin at 5,600 in a spot where the way to beat the Chiefs is to run the ball. That's what the Dolphins will try to do for as long as they can. The way to beat the Chiefs through the air is to pass to running backs. They can't can't really pass to wide receivers against the Chiefs' bottom two in wide receiver targets and yards. So just a lot points to Gaskin as a solid play. Uh, In these four games where he's been this, you know, in this lead back role sort of full-time. Two of them, two of these four games, he's posted 90 rushing yards. So that's kind of unfortunate that that he hasn't yet broken through for that uh, 100-yard bonus yet. Uh, His two touchdowns since Jordan Howard started getting, you know, benched and then cut, both of those touchdowns came in his lower yardage game. So he doesn't yet have one of these games where the touchdown matched up with the higher yardage. So one of these weeks, right like over time, these things click on a week together, and Gaskin ends up getting you know the hundred yard bonus, he ends up getting the touchdown, possibly two touchdowns, and then it's the next week that everybody jumps on him and rosters him, right and this week we had a lot of spots like that where we've been a week ahead of the field that's what we're always looking to do is is find these guys who are set to hit and just haven't yet, and as ownership drops because they haven't hit yet we get there at that that you know five percent ownership eight percent ownership nine percent ten percent whatever the guy hits we move off that player the next week and everybody jumps on him because they're like oh this guy put up 28 points last week Uh, I have to have him this week and and nothing's changed in that player's situation they just happened to hit in their last game so Gaskin is one of those guys who If he hits this week, his ownership's going to be higher next week. Actually, I don't know who the Dolphins are playing next week, but I'll assume that if he hits this week, his ownership's going to be quite a bit higher next week. As his price goes up, we want to be there before that happens. We want to be there on the week when he hits. Uh, Things line up really well for Gaskin, and I would expect him to be uh, under 10% ownership, probably in that 8% to 10% range. So, Miles Gaskin at 5600 The last piece here that doesn't require a ton of explanation... Uh, or I should say that, you know, is going to be relatively popular is the Eagles at 2200. The uh, Eagles rank second in adjusted sack rate, I believe. Third in overall sacks on the season. Not that the Saints are going to be dropping Taysom Hill back, you know, 40 times. But that's kind of the point too, right? Like, as we often say you roster a defense not for point prevention, but for sacks and turnovers. With that said, when a defense is 2,200, if you can get some point prevention, that's a good thing. Uh, we talked in the NFL Edge right up for this game about how, how poorly this spot sets up for Jalen Hurts and how the Saints have been winning games with Drew Brees on the sidelines. They have been very conscious of the fact that they don't need to put up 30-plus points. They just need to grab control of the game and then keep control of the game from there. So if Jalen Hurts bombs, the Saints are going to play a conservative game and the Eagles will get fewer sacks, fewer opportunities for turnovers, but they'll also give up fewer points. If Jalen Hurts does well or well enough... Then you have Taysom Hill dropping back more. You have more opportunities for sacks, uh, more opportunities for turnovers. And so at 2200, you're kind of looking at like a worst case scenario of about four points. And there are a lot of these, you know, break down the numbers on um, the Saints in the same game at 3800. Break down the numbers on the Saints and you're really expecting about eight to nine points. And then if, you know, things go really well or if they get some defensive touchdowns, Then you start getting into those higher point ranges. And so that's at 3,800. That's about 2x their price. Uh, If the Eagles get four or five points, that's about 2x their price. Uh, And then obviously at 2,200, with a good defense, an aggressive defense, it doesn't take that much more for them to end up with eight points, nine points, 10 points. I don't actually expect that this week against this Saints offense that is very smart, uh, very creative, and conservative uh, you know, they're going to try to take a lead and then protect that lead, which will mean emphasizing not turning the ball over, emphasizing minimizing mistakes. Uh, but again, even if you get four or five points from the Eagles and they open up a lot elsewhere, that's plenty to like. Uh, and I think they will be a little bit lower owned than the Cowboys. The Cowboys are playing Brandon Allen, but they're also playing against, uh, actually kind of, uh, Ironically, they're playing against Zach Taylor, who is going to do a better and more creative job designing a game plan for Brandon Allen than Doug Peterson will do for Jalen Hurts. Uh, I say kind of ironically because Press Taylor, Zach's brother, quarterback coach for the Eagles, has has been elevated to some play-calling duties recently. Um, so they're kind of there's some overlap here between the way that these defenses match up. Uh, but I would take the... If the Eagles are lower owned, I would take the better defense against, you know, the Saints than the lesser defense against the better coaching staff, but the worst quarterback in in Brandon Allen and the Bengals. Uh, obviously, fine with either of those defenses; they'll both be in the player grid. But Eagles at twenty two hundred is who we're locking in here. Now let's get to some lower owned pieces. So this first piece. I think will I think he'll come at under 5% ownership maybe it'll be more like under 7% but this is Antonio Brown at 5500 Now Antonio Brown is not like the sharpest play on this slate he's not necessarily even the sharpest play in this price range in terms of sharpest plays in this price range Uh, You could certainly make a case for Jameson Crowder over him. Uh, You can certainly make a case that now that Kenny Galladay is not expected to play, you can make a case that Corey Davis's, or sorry, that Marvin Jones's targets are more locked in than Antonio Brown's. I think we'll see one of the places where we'll see high ownership is Robbie Anderson with uh, DJ Moore now set to miss this game. Robbie Anderson, Curtis Samuel in this price range. Uh, But they're in a tough matchup against Denver. I know the Denver secondary is a little bit banged up, but you still have Fangio designing plays. You still have this uh, Carolina offense that's done a really bad job getting touchdowns to wide receivers, particularly Robbie Anderson. And then you've got Corey. I mentioned Corey Davis by accident, kind of looking at the guys in this price range. Corey Davis, who, uh, again, had a big game last week, but A.J. Brown is going to be playing just because Corey Davis had a big game last week. Again, that's one of those spots, Right. We want to be there on that 38 point week and then let everybody else chase the next week. There's nothing different this week in Corey Davis's setup than there was last week. So, why was nobody rostering him last week and then everybody's going to roster him this week? We want to try to avoid spots like that because over time that's going to make us money. So, what's the deal with Antonio Brown? Well, uh, you know, some of this is conjecture, some of this is guesswork, but. Let's keep in mind that Tom Brady has twice let this man live in his house when he signed with the football team that Brady's the quarterback of, that Brady lobbied for Antonio Brown, aggressively lobbied for Antonio Brown to join the Bucs. In fact, uh, initially Bruce Arians was saying, no, we will not have Antonio Brown on this team. And then eventually it was like, well, yeah, okay. Uh, watch those games, those first games that Antonio Brown played with the Bucs. And Brady was aggressively trying to get him the ball. They just missed on multiple downfield connections, multiple opportunities for touchdowns. Uh, And then uh, to a point where week 12 against the Chiefs, where I never play wide receivers against the Chiefs, that's been highly profitable this year, especially because everyone else just says, well, the Chiefs are going to score points, play wide receivers against them. Um, Okay, Chiefs allow the fewest wide receiver yards in the NFL. Good luck with that. Anyhow, Uh, Two weeks ago, I almost played Antonio Brown against the Chiefs, and what I said that week was that I was tempted to play him even though I didn't like the matchup, but that I would probably essentially probably try to have some self-control, hope that he disappointed, and then after the bye, after the Bucs had an extra week to work him into the offense and then came back on a stretch of, they have four soft pass game matchups down the stretch. The Vikings are actually, I believe, the toughest down this uh, last four games of the season for the Bucs. Uh, In fact, yeah, I just pulled it up. So it's Vikings and then Falcons, Lions, Falcons. So this is as tough as it gets the rest of the way. But this is the spot to play Antonio Brown. As a bonus, he ended up being highly owned two weeks ago against the Chiefs. Uh, I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was 15 to 20% owned against the Chiefs. And he saw three targets. That's what's going to stick in everyone's heads. But... 13 targets the week before that. Eight targets the week before that. So there are very clear ways for this play to miss. Now, that could be said about any player in the 5K price range, any wide receiver in the 5K price range. There's a reason why they're priced in that price range. But let's keep in mind that Antonio Brown, he had some drop-off his last season with the Steelers but he had some drop-off for Antonio Brown. Like, this isn't a guy, this isn't A.J. Green, right? This is a guy who the Steelers got rid of not because of performance concerns, but because of they were done with his attitude. And they did a great job keeping his craziness under wraps. And then after he left the Steelers, we saw just how much of a headache he would have been for the Steelers to constantly have to deal with. Uh, We see that the Steelers, without the talent of Antonio Brown around, have been a better team because you got to come into work every day and deal with this guy. Wouldn't you get sick of it too? Anyhow, Antonio Brown is still more than likely an 8K wide receiver or at least a 7,500 wide receiver in terms of his raw talent. If things click one of these weeks, he's the kind of guy who could put up 35-point game. Everybody will say, how did we not see that? His price tag will jump the next week, and then, you know, he'll still have his up and downs from there, right? He'll still have a shot at posting a 12-point game another week on this Bucks team that spreads the ball around. But we want to be there on the week when he hits that big game. So I am not playing single entry this week. I'm going to be mini-multi-entering. I, I kind of talk about the reasons why in the player grid. But uh, I will have Antonio Brown on a portion of these builds. Again, I don't love the play. It's no- nothing that, like, oh, this pops in the research. But I'm looking for those guys, especially on a week where not a lot stands out. I want to find those guys who can p- put the slate out of reach in their price range, who can outscore everybody else in their price range. And if they're going to come with low ownership, all the better. So, Antonio Brown against the Vikings in a game where I like the Vikings wide receivers, so I'll be betting on them on some rosters. 5,500, sub 8% ownership, I would guess, potentially sub 5% ownership. Let's get down into even lower ownership. Uh, Sam Darnold and Brashad Perriman combined, they cost. 9K in salary. That means that combined, you need them to score like 36 to 40 points. The Seahawks have the highest or second highest Vegas implied team total on the slate. The Seahawks face a top five situation neutral pass play rate. The Seahawks have faced the highest overall pass play rate in the NFL this season. The Seahawks have faced the most pass attempts. They've allowed the most passing yards. And you can go through the Seahawks and Jets right up in the NFL Edge. I would encourage you to do so. And we dive into how low Sam Darnold's passing numbers have been, like pass attempt numbers, and the underlying reasons why. Now, a lot of pass attempts in the Seahawks have improved, right? But they're still a soft matchup. A lot of pass attempts in a soft matchup doesn't make Darnold a good quarterback. He's still a bad quarterback. He can still ruin this game for the Jets himself. But the Seahawks are not particularly likely to be the reason why this game gets ruined for the Jets. So, Darnold, a third of his, in eight of his last 24 games, he's put up 20 plus points. In six of his last 24 games, 25% of his last... 24 games, he's put up 23 plus points, which is over four and a half X his salary for this week. Uh, Brashad Perriman with Denzel Mims out. The Seahawks have given up the second most pass plays this season of 20 plus yards. Uh, and, and yeah, we're looking at probably seven to nine targets for Perriman. There is potential, obviously, for him to see more than that. And this is the sort of play where you're gunning for first place in a tournament. And if it misses, fine, right? Everybody looks at a player like Darnold and they see that when he misses, he scores 10 points, 12 points, and they get scared off because of that. But tell me if Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams combine for 45 points... If Rodgers puts up 24 points and Adams puts up 22 points, as we kind of mentioned earlier, 46 combined points, are you getting first place in a tournament? No. No. You, in order to get first place in a tournament, it's almost required that your quarterback and his stacking partner go for at least 4x their salary. If they miss, you're probably not getting first place. And if that's all we're worried about in tournaments, if that's where the money is, is in first place, uh, I mentioned in the player grid that the the tournament I'm going to be focused on this week or that I expect to be focused on this week is this $500 entry Millie Maker. 5,000 entries total, a million dollars to first place. A million dollars to first place, 10 grand to 10th place. That is just an extraordinary, unfathomable drop. That's a a 100x drop from 10 spots. So if all the money is in first place, what do I care if Darnold gets 12 points or 16 points, right? 12 points or 17 points. People want these quarterbacks who they can see, like, oh well, when they miss, they get, you know, they get 3x their salary. Great. What does that get you, right? Like so. The beauty with Darnold is projected under 1% ownership in a game where people like the players on the other side, people like the Seahawks passing attack. Tell me how Russell Wilson is posting the tournament-winning quarterback score this week without Sam Darnold going 4X his salary. So because of the price difference between... Russ and Darnold. If Russ ends up being valuable this week, Darnold almost certainly ends up being valuable as well because Darnold being valuable is probably going to be required for Russ to be valuable because Russ won't be called on to throw 35 plus times and put up 300 yards and four passing touchdowns unless we get an extreme outlier or unless. Darnold is doing well enough to keep this game somewhat competitive so that the Seahawks are having to keep passing against this Jets team that everybody passes against when the score is close, and then that once they take a lead, they start running against them because it's like, okay, yeah, it's tough to run against them, but let's just close out this game. So, again, if Russ is throwing the ball enough to post a top score, that probably means that the Jets are keeping it close. And the way that the Jets are keeping it close is probably through Darnold. So I really like this play this week. I will probably have Darnold on, I'm gonna build 13 rosters in this $500 Millie Maker. I won't be surprised if I have Darnold on as many as four of those rosters. Um, Because again, targeting first place, and this is the type of play that can get you there. And if you like the Seattle passing attack in tournaments, at those price tags, that means that you actually like the Jets passing attack at their price tags. And so it's worth considering the Jets passing attack at their price tags as a way to get access to those points that everybody else is expecting the Seahawks to score here. Sam Darnold, Brashad Paraman, crazy as it sounds, that pairing, or at least, you know, paraman from that group is higher owned than, I would guess, anyone else on this bottom-up build. We've got three players left. So, so far, we have Sam Darnold and Brashad Perriman. We have Miles Gaskin, J.D. McKissick, Antonio Brown, the Eagles defense. Uh, the next two, I'm not going to spend long on. These are long-shot plays, and uh, there are plenty of other ways to get cheap pieces that you could feel happy and sound about and we'll touch on the other guys that I like in the player grid um, but these two are long shot plays I dove into the thinking behind this in the NFL edge in the tributary write-up for this game the Bears and Texans game so uh, again I'm going to go quickly on this one but if you want deeper background on this one check out the Bears and Texans game check out the tributary section Chad Hansen and Darnell Mooney. Now, the great thing here, the Texans are going to throw. Uh, Now David Johnson's going to be out this week. The Texans' chances of throwing are heightened even more. The Bears are facing the second-deepest average depth of target in the NFL. Teams attack the Bears downfield. Now, the Bears still have a good pass defense, they don't allow big production, most games, but they do get attacked downfield. Uh last week, Chad Hansen was actually, A, he played more snaps than Brandon Cooks or Kiki QT. And B, he was their biggest downfield weapon. He was like the closest thing to the direct Will Fuller replacement. Again, we talked about this in the NFL edge. Five catches for 101 yards, 20.2 yards per catch. His long was only 28 yards. So even if we take out his long, he's averaging, what is that, like about 16, 17 yards per catch. The Bears are going to want to run the ball against Houston. That's how teams like to try to beat Houston. But if Houston ends up having success through the air, right, like as we often say, as soon as you put a player on your roster, You're saying on that roster, quote, I think this player will have a tournament winning score. So once you put Hanson on a roster, maybe you just have him on one out of 20 rosters, right? And on the other 19 rosters, you don't think Hanson has a tournament winning score. But once you put Hanson onto a roster, you're saying, you know what, I think Chad Hanson has a tournament winning score. I'm going to bet on that on this roster. Well, if Hanson has a tournament winning score, that definitely increases the chances of the Bears having to throw. And if the Bears are having to throw, that increases the chances of them having to attack downfield. And if they're attacking downfield, they're throwing to Darnell Mooney, who, again, uh, as we said in the NFL Edge, we could have said like as far back as week three or four or five, hey, eventually this season the Darnell Mooney explosion is coming. And now we're in week 14, and the Darnell Mooney explosion still hasn't hit. But why would we have said that? Well, target counts, let's start with week three target counts of 5 9, 5 5, 7 6, 11, two, nine, six. On top of that, he has a downfield role. He's averaging 10.7 yards per reception. It's really difficult for a player to that consistently see that many targets on downfield looks and continue to finish with single-digit points. So we're pretty deep in the season. Maybe the Darnell Mooney explosion isn't coming. But if Chad Hansen hits, the chances of the Darnell Mooney explosion hitting this week Are heightened, so these players, these two players, work really, really well together. Now, this is kind of a high risk, highly speculative move. I could see myself, I could see myself having none of this pairing. With thirteen rosters expected, I could also see myself having one of this pairing, and then maybe two Hanson rosters without Mooney. Maybe a Hanson roster with. Anthony Miller. I don't want to go up to Alan Robinson because, again, Alan Robinson, you're just betting on, on volume and then hoping he gets to like 26, 27, 28 points. It's unlikely that Robinson's going to put up a 35 point game, a 38 point game, the type of game where you're like, man, why didn't I pay a, a ton of salary for this guy's score, right? Robinson's the kind of guy who, when he hits, if you have him, you're like, oh, sweet, I got 25, 28 points. But if you don't have him, you really don't even notice that he hit because you know, what's 25, 28 points? It's, it's what he needs at his price tag. Um, so I want to go to one of these cheaper guys here. And again, uh, Anthony Miller is also viable if the Bears are having to pass more. All of these guys work, or both of these guys work as leverage off of David Montgomery. Uh, and, and to a lesser extent, they work as leverage off of Alan Robinson, who won't be as popular as David Montgomery, but will be more popular than these two guys. So uh, Darnell Mooney, Chad Hanson, high risk, But if we're talking about how do we find some cheap pieces that could win you a tournament, those are pieces that I would want to go to. And I like the idea of playing them together. The larger the tournament field, the more viable it is to go that direction. Uh, A couple other guys down here who one of them is not on the player grid. Two of them are not on the player grid. Three of them are not on the player grid uh, who are also viable down here. Colin Colin Johnson is on the player grid just with like a brief mention as far as I like this Jaguars passing attack on sort of this strange and ugly week. Uh, he's not on the bottom-up build for a reason that we'll get to in just a moment. Uh, Michael Gallup is not on the player grid, but I'm perfectly fine with him. Hunter Renfro and Danny Amendola provide some floor down here. Uh, Danny Amendola, especially with the way that the Packers do a good job eliminating perimeter-wide receivers, which would be Marvin Jones, and then Kenny Galladay's expected to be out, and so uh, that would help Amendola. Hunter Renfro at 4K is another guy. Marquez Valdez-Scantling for extremely low floor, but clear twenty point, twenty plus point upside against a Lions defense that gets attacked downfield pretty aggressively. That's a good way to get some leverage off of Uh, Devontae Adams-Chalk, nobody wants to play Marquez Valdez-Scantling. We all know that he can get you 20 points, 24 points, 27 points. But similar to the Sam Darnold thing, it's like, well, if he misses, he could get you zero. And truthfully, like you can't afford a 3X game at quarterback and win first place in just about any tourney. You can afford a 2x or 3x game from a cheap wide receiver and still get first place in a tournament. What you can't take is a zero from a cheap wide receiver and get first place in a tournament. And that's kind of the risk with MVS is he literally can get you a zero. Um, He's done it multiple times. And so uh, there is some risk with MVS. But again, just from an upside perspective, he's another guy to keep in mind. Uh, So yeah, those are some other places where I wouldn't mind going at this cheaper end of the price range. The last guy on this roster, and the reason why Colin Johnson is not on this roster, is James O'Shaughnessy. And we touched on him, obviously, in the NFL Edge. We'll touch on him briefly in the player grid as well. But James O'Shaughnessy is minimum-priced. Mike Glennon has been leaning on the tight ends. O'Shaughnessy has 10 targets in two Glennon games. And Tyler Eifert has 10 targets in two Glennon games. That's 20 combined targets in two games. That's 10 targets per game for tight ends. And so James O'Shaughnessy at 2,500, he's not going to get you a ton of yards, but he can easily go 5 for 45 or 5 for 50, right? And let's say that Hunter Henry has his standard uh, four catches for 45. And let's say, and that's at 4,400. Let's say that Darren Waller at 6,800 has his standard eight catches for 60 yards, right? And these guys are getting you like 9 to 13, 9 to 15 points. If James O'Shaughnessy gets you seven, eight, nine points at 2,500... Uh, You're moving so far ahead of the field. If James O'Shaughnessy totally bombs, he's still probably getting you two catches for 25 yards. Um, Actually, I just had a flashback to, I've only played O'Shaughnessy once before, and it was on a somewhat chalky O'Shaughnessy week. And I believe I remember saying that week that if he bombs, he still doesn't hurt you. And he ended up getting like a zero, or maybe he had one catch that week, like one catch for 11 yards, something like that. Um, Anything can happen, but... Uh, O'Shaughnessy should be able to get you, you know, these two, three, four catches for 20, 30, 40 yards. He could get a touchdown like that. Wouldn't be a shock. He's 2,500. So uh, I think that he's interesting. You could also go up to Tyler Eifert here. Obviously, Jordan Akins is very viable down here as well. But uh, O'Shaughnessy kind of gets you into that same potential scoring range as Jordan Akins at lower ownership. So if Aikens ends up getting the seven or eight points and O'Shaughnessy gets the 12 or 13 points, scores a touchdown, uh, you know, that's a nice little edge on the field there. And so James O'Shaughnessy at 2,500 is the last piece of this bottom-up build, yet another guy on this bottom-up build who will probably be under 1% owned. He's not a guy I am prioritizing, but I've mentioned before that when I get down to the end of a roster. If I'm hand building and I'm down to like, I've maybe filled in five spots I like, and I have two spots left plus tight end and defense. What I'll often do is put in the cheapest tight end and defense that I would feel comfortable rolling forward with in order to see what salary I have left in order to see what's possible at these other two spots. So this week, sort of the guys I would be putting in would be O'Shaughnessy and the Eagles, which means I wouldn't be going out of my way to end up with those pieces. But if I were able to do something that I really liked, and it was like, well, if if tight end and defense is the place where I just have to save some salary, I'm okay with that, right? And so uh, O'Shaughnessy would be that piece this week. I had one roster this week where, you know, I kind of filled out those last couple spots, and then I had 400 in salary left over. And so then I went from O'Shaughnessy up to Aikens on that roster, right? Like that's kind of how I will be playing things this week is if I get down to the end of a build, O'Shaughnessy would be one of the guys that I'd be comfortable putting in and just saying, what does this leave me with salary? And then from there, figure out what I want to do at the tight end spot based on what I do elsewhere. With that, I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. It did end up being a full hour. We took up a lot of time at the top of the pod talking about some stuff, Um We've basically covered kind of what this slate looks like, what the angles are on this slate. And then we'll cover some more kind of overall slate stuff and who I'm going to be you know, pulling players, where I'm going to be pulling players from uh, in the player grid. So with that, I'm gonna get out of here. I think that I am going to go watch Home Alone with William and Abby. Uh, it'll be William's first Home Alone viewing, so uh we'll we'll see how that goes um, and i will see you guys on the site throughout the weekend and i'll see you at the top of the leaderboards on sunday thanks for hanging out